I want to start right off with this thought this morning. I'm just going to put it out there. How you respond in your heart to this message today will show you the true state of your soul before the Lord. Whether you're truly regenerate, truly in Christ, truly a member of the kingdom of God, it will show you by the time we're done today. I'll return to this at the very end. I just want to place that in your mind. That'll be the last thing we talk about. But how you respond to this message today will show you the state of your soul. In the land of Eden, there was a garden that God made. And in this garden, God made perfect provision for Adam and Eve. They would never be hungry or thirsty. They would never have unmet physical needs of any kind whatsoever. They would live forever in the worship and sweet communion with God that God intended. That was the design. But then they rebelled against God. They took the one command he gave to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they succumbed to the deceiver, to Satan. And they brought the curse of sin down into the world. And with sin came death. And with death came the tragedy associated with death. God created Adam to be the husband the leader of the family, the providing worker of the family to provide for his wife and for his children. But when death entered into the world through sin, now husbands died at times before their wives and parents died at times before their children. And this created the class of people the Bible often pairs together, orphans and widows those who are in dire straits because sin has entered the world and wrecked God's original intention for the family, that there should never be a class of person that we might call the vulnerable. But in God's mercy to even a sinful world, He showed His care and His compassion to the vulnerable, characterized most poignantly by the, by the widow or by the orphan. And so He provided a way for those who worship Him to bridge the gap between the necessary provision in this life and the total eternal provision of the life that's to come. That there is a a provision, a bridge, so to speak. And I'd like to examine that bridge today. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And we'll look at verses 3 through 8, as well as verse 16. We've been examining what a God-pleasing church is like in preparation for our move to the White Lane building We've called this series, Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. And today, I'd like to look at the next thing that a God-pleasing church does, and we're calling this Helping the Vulnerable. Helping the Vulnerable. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 3, we'll read through verse 8, and then also verse 16. Next week, I'll explain why we skipped everything in between. Chapter 5, verse 3, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. 
But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. I want to just give you four commands that we could extract from this passage to the church that is God-pleasing. And the first command we're just going to borrow from the sermon title, which is helping the vulnerable. The first command is help the vulnerable. Help the vulnerable. And this is not new to the New Testament. It's not new to the New Covenant at all. Under God's covenant with Israel, the old covenant, to this people, he showed this very deep care and he commanded that they live this out. Exodus 22, 22 and 23, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, an orphan. The very next verse, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. This is the threat of retribution for mistreating the vulnerable in their community. Deuteronomy 14, 29, God made one of the conditions of blessing this nation how they treat the vulnerable. Quote, and the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. In other words, any orphan, any widow ought to be able to knock on anyone's door and say, I have need. And all of Israel is to say absolutely and to welcome them in. Deuteronomy 24, 17, God gives a warning. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. Two verses later in Deuteronomy 24, 19, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In other words, sovereignly, under the sovereignty of God, if you are too dumb to remember to get all of your harvest, then too bad. That's God's plan to provide. What what would we say today? If somebody is in need behind you and you accidentally drop a $100 bill, you leave it there. Every third year, an extra tithe was to be paid to take care of the vulnerable. In Deuteronomy 26, 12, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. It was a special offering given just to help all the vulnerable in their society, in their community. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, God insisted on agreement to this. He said, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. God insisted you agree on this. Job 24.3 states that the wicked man mistreats the vulnerable. Quote, They drive away the donkey of the orphan. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They're cruel to those who are vulnerable, in other words. Psalm 68.5 describes God's compassion that he is, quote, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So this is nothing new. And now, under the new covenant, God's concerned that the people of God bridge the gap between a sinful world and the eternal life to come. That continues on because it's in his character, it's in his nature. And in this age, the church 
to us has come the same principles concerning the vulnerable. Now let's get this out of the way first. We need to define what helping the vulnerable is not. Helping the vulnerable is not the church becoming a social services outreach to the community at large. That is not helping the vulnerable to anyone with physical needs in the community. And, and certainly we, we, our hearts go out to everyone. Our hearts go out to those in need. But the church is never called to do that. That is a social gospel model which takes the church from being the pillar and foundation of the truth to being a local social service agency. That's never our calling. That's the world's definition of the church, not God's. When you ask an unbeliever about churches, what do they say? Oh yeah, we we like churches. There's churches, there's the United Way, there's the March of Dimes, there's all those charitable organizations. We're even listed, according to the IRS, as a charitable organization. In John chapter 12, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus with an expensive ointment equivalent to a year's wages. And Judas said that she should have sold it and given it to the poor. Now, actually, he was mad because he used to help himself from the money bag because he was the keeper of the money. But Jesus answered, leave her alone for the poor you always have with you. In other words, the church will not solve poverty. That's not our calling. There's only one who can solve poverty, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ by returning to the earth and decimating all of the ungodly governments that are the actual cause of poverty. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, records an incident shortly after the day of Pentecost when Peter and John were going to the temple for prayer. And a man who was lame from birth was at the gate called Beautiful. He was asking for donations. And he expected that Peter and John would give something to him. Acts 3, beginning in verse 5, And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. The healing was a tangible way to prove to this man that Peter and John were actual representatives of Christ, the Son of God, and that they were meeting the true need this man had, and that was salvation in Christ. That was his true need. Now, when Peter said, I have no silver or gold, do you think that the scene looks something like this? I have no, oh, oh, I forgot my wallet. I would have given you something, but I have no silver or gold. I'll catch you next time. No, that's not the case. In fact, it was almost completely unlikely that that was the case. He certainly had money on him because they were going to the temple to pray. And traditionally, you put a little coin or two in the treasury when you went to the temple to pray. So he had money on him, most likely. The point of the story is not, don't be like Peter and John that forgot their wallets when a needy person was there. The point is that what the church has to offer is of infinitely more value. The truth of Christ and the way home to heaven. The way of eternal life. And let me put it to you this way and listen very carefully because this is easy to understand but important to understand. Across the board, anything the world and unbelievers have to say about the mission of the church will always be wrong. 100% of the time. How do we know this? Because if they knew the true mission of the church, they would come to faith in Christ. Anything the world says about the church will always be wrong. 
So that's a really easy way to judge when unbelievers have an opinion about the church, whatever they say, believe the opposite, and you're probably close. Now, is there a place for some sort of limited outreach to the community? Obviously, there is, but only in the context of gospel opportunities. That's our job. We're to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And what we're going to see in this passage is that the primary people we're to care for are believers in Christ, confirmed members of the church, our spiritual brothers and sisters. And so verse 3, once again, honor widows who are truly widows. I read the whole passage already, and it seems to be, maybe to our 21st century minds, kind of a long passage given to just something as simple as the care of widows. And, And we can extrapolate the principle of caring for anyone who is in a vulnerable state in the church as well. It may seem like almost too much attention But in ancient times, the problem of widows was extremely serious because the options for earning a living or for self-care were far more limited. But why is it that we might think that this is a little bit too long? I I know that you feel that you may feel that we live in, depending on how you you describe it, a democracy or a republic. Uh, Compared to 100 years ago, we live in essentially a socialist society. And what do we count on to take care of those in need, the government. That was never God's design for government. The government has essentially taken over what in the ancient world was the domain of the family and then of the church. And so it can be very easy to overlook our obligations and just default to letting the government do our duty for us. We've been accustomed to that. We've grown accustomed to that. We're told in the church, though, to honor the widows, honor the vulnerable What does it mean to honor them? It's the same root word used to speak of honoring the teaching elders later on in the chapter in verse 18. It speaks of reverence and respect as well as the extended usage of the word to simply speak of financial support. It's a present tense verb. It suggests a repeated or a continuous action in the church that there is a continual care. You bridge the gap all the way to heaven. You don't build half of a bridge. That doesn't do anybody any good. And this is speaking of meeting very practical needs financially or in other ways, physically, uh, physical basic needs can be met. What does that imply for the rest of the church? Well, first of all, it implies this honor with those who are truly widows. It implies having a high and lofty view of those who are the most vulnerable in the church. They're to be loved and cherished. They're precious to us. They're precious to us. And the second implication, it implies having a sacrificial giving spirit to give out of our means for this part of the ministry. It is, it is a godly and a lofty thing to do. And so basically, at a basic level, we're just to help the vulnerable. Help the vulnerable. Now, the first question that probably pops into our minds is, okay, but who are the vulnerable? How do we define them? Second command we could extract, define the recipients. Define the recipients. Paul gives us the beginning of a definition. He says those who are truly widows. What does this mean? It means that not every single woman who has been deprived of her husband, that's what the word actually means here, deprived, and by extension, not every single person who claims to have a need is a true person in need. And so Paul gives two qualifiers to be truly a widow, truly someone in need, meaning a woman who is older and completely without resources. I'll I'll show you that in a moment. The two qualifiers to be truly a widow. First, 
She has no other means of support. She has no other means of support. She is totally alone in the world without any means of self-support. Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone. The implication here is that she has believing relatives. But in many cases, frankly, even unbelieving relatives are willing to provide for their family. Verse 8 will indicate this. But before the church takes up any burden, even the unbelieving relatives ought to be made aware of the vulnerable one's uh, situation. And, And certainly the believing relatives and the implication is right there within the church. But if the vulnerable person has heartless children, heartless grandchildren then the unspoken logic here is that the church is to help only at that point. Now, you might ask, what about, for example, a young widow who's widowed early in life, maybe even with small children? Certainly the church can elect to help her, but Paul gives a much more long-term solution. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry. That makes much more sense. Keep that burden from the church. So the first qualifier, she has no other means of support. The second qualifier She is a believer in Christ. She's a believer in Christ. And by implication, a member of the local church in good standing. Now, why do we have to say that? I've been a part of Mercy Ministries in the past, and it's amazing how many people who need money suddenly have a a salvation experience. You ask, are you a Christian? Oh, absolutely. And I'm a Christian who can't pay his electric bill. So no, she's a member in good standing with the church. And we'll see that, in fact, in later verses next week. So she is completely without means of support and she is a believer in Christ. Look at the second part of verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. What does this mean? It means that the trial of widowhood, or we could expand this, the trial of being in a very vulnerable situation shows her faith to be genuine. She's set her faith on God. Now, just to be very clear here, this doesn't mean that once the trial hit her, all of a sudden she set her hope on God. The implication here from this verb is that it's something she's already done. That she loved her husband, but her hope was not in her husband. Her hope has always been in the Lord. This wasn't a new hope, but now she has the opportunity to live it out in fullness Because there's no human or earthly solution for the crisis she's found herself in. This is the great test of faith that we see in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this, meaning trials, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuine testedness, I'm sorry, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means that there's a sense of rejoicing that when the greatest of life's trials have hit, you didn't run from Christ, you ran to him. And that was your norm. You were used to that. That when the greatest of trials strikes, you turn all the more to Christ and it demonstrates that your faith is real. And in this, you rejoice. And just look at the response of the woman in need. She continues now in prayer night and day. 
Perhaps she's spending time that she used to spend with her husband now in prayer. Let me just give you two brief observations about this phrase, praying night and day. First of all, night and day is a Jewish idea that it's an idiom that means constantly or continually. It means her prayer life has become all the more rich and fluid and continual. And one more observation. In Jewish culture, a day begins at sundown. And so we see this multiple places in the New Testament. And so the phrase night and day is a way of saying she begins every day with prayer. She begins what we would say as the nighttime, but she would say this is the beginning of the next day. I begin in prayer. What's the point of this? These qualifications. It's so the church or the elders representing the church, they're not having to scratch their heads and wonder, I, I, I suppose she might be a believer and maybe we ought to help her. No, instead, the testimony of her life after tragedy and for anyone in a vulnerable position, their testimony of life after tragedy is that of being firmly and staunchly setting their hope in the Lord and demonstrating this by having the rich, full prayer life that perhaps a busy married woman can't have to that extent. I I get this question a lot from young moms. How do I have time to pray? That's easy. Wait for your kids to grow up and you'll have a lot more time to pray. Right now your prayers are kind of like missile shots straight to heaven really quick. But the widow has this testimony, this brightness, this glorious witness to be able to say, oh, yes, I I pray four hours a day. And that's the days when I'm lazy. The trial has brought out the, the best in her. The fruit of the Spirit just shines forth all the more in her life. And of course, the church ought to come alongside her, ought to come alongside the vulnerable. But what about the widow who goes the other direction? that perhaps without the godly influence of her husband begins to show a degradation in her spiritual life or worse, demonstrates she was never regenerate in the first place. I've encountered this personally as a minister of the gospel that a man dies and his wife suddenly looks like an unbeliever. This type of person exists and Paul addresses this situation. Verse 6, But she who is self-indulgent, it means luxuriant, But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. This is the woman who was involved with the church while her husband was alive, but now she's alive physically, but it becomes very clear that she's dead spiritually. Her true colors start coming out once the protective barrier of her godly husband is removed. She's not to be supported by the church. She's to be abandoned to the consequences of her sin. In fact, Paul doesn't even use the honored word widow for her because she doesn't deserve it. She's the one with plenty of means who now sees herself freed from marriage and really lives it up. She sows herself to be spiritually dead. So of course the church ought not to waste one nickel on her and perhaps maybe being abandoned by the church at that point would show her the true state of her heart and perhaps she would repent. Give you an illustration. In 1930... A 23-year-old man named John married a 19-year-old secretary in Massachusetts. John, at the age of 23, was already successful financially because of his family. His family had, his father rather, had been president of General Motors at one time. 
He was a wildly successful stock market investor. And at the time of the wedding of his son, he was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Very influential and a ridiculously wealthy man. How wealthy was John's father? In 1929, just weeks before the stock market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression, the father, John's father, wrote an article for the Ladies' Home, home Journal about investing. And he said this, quote, and remember, this is almost 100 years ago. He said, quote, A man with a million dollars used to be considered rich, but so many people have that much in these days that a millionaire doesn't cause any comment. For him, somebody with a million dollars was middle class. And so his son John was starting off in life absolutely loaded. The family was Catholic, and in a religious and moral sense, they tried to be good Catholics. The young bride, at the age of 19, adjusted to this new life and also tried to be a good Catholic. She tried to fall into the shadow of her husband who would go on to do great things of his own accord. Fast forward many decades, about five decades or so, and the young bride is now an old widow. And how does she spend her life? She lived an opulent life in the most extravagant, expensive part of a well-known city in California that may or may not be San Francisco. She went on one to two per year, six-figure, three-month world cruises. And in between, she took many trips to Europe. She was constantly sunbathing to continue her six-decade determination to be the most sun-fried person on planet Earth. She simply went from one extravagant source of entertainment to the next. Constantly, nothing was ever enough. And on occasion, just on occasion, she would condescend to come visit a relative by marriage who happened to have two children, of which I was one. She didn't want to stay in our mere middle-class home, so she would stay in a high-end hotel and, and in some form of kindness would invite our family to come swim at the hotel and look around at all the things we would never have in all of our life. Now, my brother and I would go do this and we thought it would be fun, but every time we forgot that the horrible price we had to pay was forgetting that she would be sunbathing and her barbecued body burned beyond what should be humanly possible, charred our tra traumatized memories. To this day, I still shake a little bit thinking about it. And then she would say, well, we're done swimming. Let's go out to eat. And she'd take us to an expensive restaurant. And she would ask the waiter, what's the very cheapest thing that you have? And can these two boys split it? And by the way, I'll take this $200 bottle of wine. When we'd finally get away, I still remember this. As a child, I felt like I needed to take a bath. I felt like I needed to get clean being around what felt like living death. An utterly purposeless life spent desperately trying to be entertained until death finally caught up with her. So why does Paul give this warning? We don't just give the church's money. We don't give God's money away to unbelievers as a regular support for them. It doesn't help in the long run and it's not what they need. They need the gospel. We don't use kingdom resources to throw away to unbelievers. So there's two qualifications. She has no other means of support and she is clearly a believer. And again, this goes for any person claiming to be in the desperate need of physical help on a regular basis. So what we actually have here is a guideline for mercy ministry. 
There's a third command we can extract from this text. Very, very practical. And that command is decrease the need. Decrease the need. How does the leadership of the church decrease the need for helping the truly vulnerable both immediately and in the long term? How do you decrease the need? You teach the church how they're to be responsible as individuals. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Look at verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. You notice who Paul is addressing, the relatives of the widow or of the person who's vulnerable. The assumption is, is that they're in the church because he wants them, quote, show, to show godliness to their own household. It's godly to provide for your parents or grandparents because, quote, it's pleasing in the sight of God. And Paul says this is a way to make some return to their parents. This is huge. This is a biblical principle that children are indebted to their parents. The children and grandchildren are to make some return. This has a direct meaning of paying back a debt. There is no other subtle meaning to it. It means you owe something. And godly children will welcome this opportunity because it pleases God. Those who are believers in Christ always welcome opportunities to please the Lord, right? The family has the first obligation and duty to the truly vulnerable in their family. You're returning the good that you've received. And you might say, well, I didn't really have that, that good of a childhood. But your parents and grandparents still gave you life. You're still here because of them. Think about this for a moment. Joseph in the Old Testament sold into slavery by his own brothers. I mean, we've been cruel to our siblings as kids. I don't know any of you sold one into slavery, though. But he rises to the level of prime minister of Egypt, and now he's a man of means. And during a famine, what does he do? He cares for his elderly father and for all of his lousy brothers and all their families. Genesis 45, 9, Joseph tells his brothers, hurry. And go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Nicest place, by the way. And you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Did you catch his attitude? Hurry and go to my father and say to him. It's not reluctant. It's not, well, I guess I will because the Bible says so. There was an eagerness. Joseph, 11th out of 12 brothers, hated by his brothers as a, as a kid. What an opportunity and he's eager because he has the ability to care for what would turn out to be 70 people. Why are IRAs, 401ks, and other retirement plans necessary? Because in our culture, you cannot generally count on your children to take care of you. That's why they're necessary. And because we tend to split our families into no more than two generations under one roof. And that just elevates expenses for everyone. In Jesus' day, when the son got married, it was really simple. Dad built a room onto the family home. And the son brought his wife home, still the head of his own little family, but in a situation where it was clearly understood that family cared for one another. 
In fact, Paul says here, you are to make some return. It's been sadly noted that one father can work hard to keep and provide for 10 children while 10 children can barely manage to care for one older father. Or one mother can raise six, seven, eight children who as adults all squabble and fight over who has to deal with mom instead of honoring her and caring for her. Remember the wicked Pharisees and one of the many times that Jesus denounced them as religious frauds, as false believers? In Matthew 15, 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus takes them apart. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Let me translate this. Somebody who claims to be a Christian today and attends Grace Bible Church, and says to their their ailing mother, I would have helped you financially, but I decided to give this money to joyful generosity instead. If I found out, I would give it back to you. We would say, no, don't do that. In other words, the Pharisees were making an excuse for ignoring their elderly parents. Well, I've given it to God, I bet. I bet they didn't. But Paul gets even more specific on this issue. He deals with both men and women who are capable of caring for their family. First, for the men, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we need to be very precise here. The phrase translated, his relatives, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, That's a translational decision, but it simply means one's own or the ones who belong to you. This would include not just family, but also in the first century world, servants in the household. It would also include neighbors or friends with whom you were particularly close and had a a true bond of friendship. That in the first century world, even your servants who became vulnerable ought to be cared for by you. Now this makes the next phrase a little more clear, and especially members of his household, especially family. So in other words, you might say this, if anyone does not provide for those closest to him, those that you're responsible for, and especially for those you're related to, he's worse than an unbeliever. Now this is focused on men. Verse 16 will address women. A believing man is mandated to be the provider for his household. In our 21st century world, that scares men. What does this mean? Well, it means, and this is the Greek, it means man up. It means do whatever it takes. And you might say, well, last time I worked hard, I got a splinter, and and I don't want that. And you might even say, well, I work 40 hours a week. That's a lot. Well, let's do the math. 40 hours a week leaves 128 other hours. I don't want you to be well-rested, so take 56 hours for sleep. That leaves 72 hours. Spend two hours every day with your family. That leaves 58 hours. 
Spend two more hours every day with your wife. That leaves 44 hours. Spend all of the Lord's day, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Have a two or three hour nap during the afternoon. Take 12 hours that day. That leaves 32 hours. Use your spiritual gifts for the sake of Christ. 10 hours a week. That leaves 22 hours. Spend personal time in the word and in prayer. Even six days a week, 30 minutes a day. That leaves 19 hours. Have a hobby. Enjoy life a little bit. Recreate for three or four hours a week. That leaves 15 hours. When someone says, I don't have enough time to make extra money, I'll bet I could find 15 hours minimum. I've issued this challenge to young men and and I'm undefeated so far when they say I'm too busy. I'll bet I could find a way you're not. It takes faith to be a provider. You spend time working and you spend time praying. And I promise you, that God will always provide, but you have to man up and have the faith to work hard and trust God to do more than you ever thought possible because you're honoring Him. And look how direct Paul is. The man who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. He has denied the faith. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's judging the, the state of his soul. He's not saying you're clearly an unbeliever. He's not saying that at all. He's just observing that his actions are totally at odds with the compassion and the sacrificial love which characterizes the Christian. John thirteen thirty five. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What kind of Christian doesn't take care of his elderly mother? 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How? Because you have the Spirit of God. Why does Paul say this is worse than being an unbeliever? Because even pagans knew the importance of providing for their parents. Greek law and morality codes from long before Roman times, which still influenced the culture in Paul's day, said that adult children were morally bound to support their parents. This was how they avoided a large government welfare system. They simply said, children, support your parents. Aristotle said that a man ought to starve before he would see his parents starve. Plato said, quote, The honor of loving parents to whom we have to pay the first and greatest and oldest of debts, considering that all which a man has belongs to those who gave him birth and brought him up, and that he must do all that he can to minister to them, paying the debts due to them for their care and travail, which they bestowed upon him of old in the days of his infancy, and which he is now able to pay back to them when they are old and in the extremity of their need. Now, I want to be very clear. We're not citing unbelievers as sources for our Christian life. Simply making Paul's point that pagans believe they ought to care for their parents. And a Christian who doesn't do that is acting worse than a pagan. It's very simple. Work harder. Pray more. And God will provide. And remember that there's a broad responsibility you provide for your own, which goes outside the bounds of just your family. For example, if you're an employer, in a real sense, your employees are your responsibility. And according to Paul, even unbelievers often took care of their own. They're your responsibility. Don't just pay them a paycheck. Make sure they're, they're okay. Care for them. Go above and beyond. Many years ago, I worked for a godly Christian man. And he decided that his employees 
ought to have a share of the profits that his little company brought in. And so he set up a bonus system that did not include him. He made plenty of money. He set up a bonus system and he was so completely generous that more often than not, our bonus checks were bigger than our paychecks. And his, his reasoning was very clear. He said, I'm responsible for you. I want you to be well cared for. Now, right about now, you might be saying, well, I, I, I'm starting to see the logic of this. I'm seeing the biblical truth of this. And so when the time comes, I need to figure that out. Guess when the time is grammatically here? It's now. Paul uses the word provide. It's a word that means plan beforehand. Plan ahead. This is a decision you make now because it's a spiritual decision, not a financial one. And of course, the Lord will honor that decision. He'll provide for you so that you in turn can provide for those in your charge. And then just briefly, Paul also gives instruction to women. The implication being that these are women without male providers, but they have some means or some ability to be a provider. In verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is very self-explanatory. But Paul has not let us squirm out of this in any way, shape, or form. Family in general, verse 4. Men, verse 8. Women, verse 16. One of the best ways to care for the vulnerable is to remind you that the family is God's design for the first line of defense and help. And by teaching younger generations in subsequent years, there will be fewer of the vulnerable to care for as a church. By the way, you know what happens to churches that go liberal in their theology? They tend to go liberal everywhere and they tend to have a lot of vulnerable people. Why? Because they don't preach work hard. They preach you have rights to have money given to you. And so, of course, all the people who want money given to them are going to those churches. I don't know the next time you'll hear a sermon which includes the topic of taking care of your own family. So I would urge you to take this to heart. Plan before. Think beforehand. We'll do one more. A fourth command we could extract from this text. Sanctify the church. Sanctify the church. In the area of trusting the Lord, daily provision for our basic needs has been historically just about the biggest issue we face. We live in a world where to provide for ourselves, we have to work by the, the sweat of our brow. We live in a world in the 21st century in which people still starve to death. This is primarily due to corrupt governments, but nevertheless, provision is a big part of developing faith. I have noticed in the lives of believers who have had everything given to them their entire lives, there is a sense in which they don't have a full grasp of what it means to really trust the Lord. Every Christian ought to be in a position where you're praying for your next meal, where you're praying for your next bill to be paid. That's good for you. It's, it's good muscle building for faith. But I want you to notice that for Paul, every circumstance, including this need for provision, is an opportunity for spiritual growth. Now, this is a tender topic, and so he doesn't hit this hard. He doesn't give direct teaching or admonition to all those involved, but there's this wonderfully tactful and sensitive, indirect encouragement toward living a life of faith and trust in the Lord, and we find it in two places in this text. First of all, in verse 5, 
rather than telling widows that it's now time to pray without ceasing, he simply assumes that they are. But by saying this, there's an assumption of a quiet reminder, a gentle nudge. A vulnerable person now has a glorious opportunity to be driven to prayer. If I say to one of you, I'm so glad that you pray for me every day, you'll just say, you're welcome. And then you'll go home and write down, I need to pray for Pastor Steve every day. I didn't tell you to do it, but you just decided to because of the gentle nudge. And that's what Paul is doing. If you will see tragedy and trial in your life as a push toward prayer, I guarantee you there will be a time that you begin thanking the Lord for trials. Oh, we're already commanded to do that. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. You know how I know somebody has embraced a trial? Because they tell me, I'm so thankful for what the Lord is doing in me through this. There's a second place we find this tactful encouragement, and that's in verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. And the question is, who are they that ought to be without reproach? Those who are behaving obediently and with confidence in the Lord. Who, who are they? Well, it's everyone involved. This situation benefits everyone. The vulnerable person is pushed toward prayer and a higher level of trust in the Lord. The family of the vulnerable person is looking at each other saying, this is what the Bible says. It's time to put our money where our mouth is, put our money where our faith is. The church with the vulnerable person. Oh yes, we have this wonderful building program we're doing right now and we have nice things and we have a lot of pastors on staff and that's great. But if we have a vulnerable person, am I willing to dig deeper for them? And the leadership of the church with the vulnerable person. The vulnerable person in our church is precious to us because it reminds us as elders of the importance of that person needing care and needing the basics. All have a role to play in pleasing God as the primary and sole focus and motivation. And the church is so sanctified. The church is so, has so much benefit to it. We're being taught to be faithful to our families. The vulnerable are setting an example of prayer and steadfast hope in the Lord. The church as a whole is coming alongside the vulnerable person with compassion. In fact, to get specific about the faithful and mature widows in a local church, what we're going to see next time is that Paul sees them as one of the greatest spiritual resources in the church. Why? Because one woman who has walked faithfully with the Lord, even at the loss of her husband, is a tremendous influence, a tremendous uh, uh, example to others and has so much to offer the church. That woman makes all of our littler problems pale in comparison. And we look at her and her joy and her delight in the Lord and her eagerness to serve Christ and and mentioning, yeah, I prayed for two hours this morning and mentioning to us, I read the Bible for three hours today and mentioning to us, I'm so thankful for what the Lord's doing. What's going on in your life? Well, I was going to tell you I can't pay my electric bill. I think I'm just going to stop and I'm not going to say anything. Oh, what a tremendous tremendous resource they are in the church. The Philippian church got this. They understood it. They helped a person who was vulnerable. He was vulnerable because he was under house arrest in Rome with no way to make a living, and yet he had to provide for himself because he had to rent the house that he was arrested in. 
This was, of course, the Apostle Paul and the, the Philippian church gave sacrificially and above and beyond to help him. And in Philippians 4, Paul is thanking them for their generosity to him. He says in chapter 4, verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, this is what I want you to get. Because at this point, he comforts them that because of their faithfulness and generosity, because they gave sacrificially, God will provide for not only them as individuals, but for the work of the ministry. And he says, and we often take this out of that context, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they help the vulnerable. When you as individuals help one another, when the church as a body helps the vulnerable person, God will supply even more for us to continue the work of the gospel. I promise you he will because he's faithful. I'd like to give you five encouragements to put this into practice. I'm going to be as practical as we can here. First encouragement, the elders keep a benevolence fund. We don't touch it for anything else except for the vulnerable. It's used to assist those who have a legitimate need which can't be met any other way. And traditionally, many of you give to the Benevolence Fund on Communion Sundays. We don't always announce that, but that's when you're reminded of Christ's benevolent love for you, and that's when we see our donations to our Benevolence Fund go up. That's one way you can think about this. Second way to think about this, to be encouraged, have a regular routine of praying for the more vulnerable among us. How precious it is when your love is translated in taking them to the throne of God and let them know Third encouragement, be a personal encouragement to the more vulnerable among us. And if you, if you see a need that you can personally meet, just meet it. Just care for one another. Play the game of having nobody else ever know you met that need until heaven. This is a powerful gospel witness. Again, John thirteen thirty five. by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a fourth encouragement, be part of the member care team. Be part of the member care team. And it's not that hard. There are various ways to get involved. And it's not usually a week-to-week commitment. Usually uh, it comes in waves as needs arise. And one more encouragement. If you are in a vulnerable position, especially if you're in the group of my favorite Christians, the seasoned older saints among us, don't stay silent. Don't suffer without letting us know. It breaks our hearts as leaders to find out that a seasoned saint suffered without anybody knowing. Allow us the privilege of being a church that's sanctified by helping you. Allow us that privilege. In the Garden of Eden, God made perfect provision for Adam and Eve. They would never be hungry. They would never be thirsty. They would never have unmet physical needs of any kind. They would live forever in the worship and sweet communion with God that God had intended But then they rebelled against God. They took one command that he gave and they succumbed to the deceiver and they brought the curse of sin and with sin came death and with death came tragedy. And that tragedy now includes orphans and widows. But the church of Jesus Christ is the growing collection of kingdom citizens on earth awaiting the coming kingdom of God. Of Christ, and we are God's instruments to bridge the gap 
until hope is realized in eternity. If you have repented of your sin, if you have humbly acknowledged that sin reeks in you and that you've confessed to our holy God, you've asked for mercy and forgiveness, then you will always, always be provided for. God will always provide for you. He will always help you until you draw your last breath on this earth. Psalm 37, 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Never in the church should someone have to beg for bread. We are to bridge the gap. I know there are many vulnerable among us at times and you've cried many tears. You're vulnerable because of tragedy. But God keeps track of your tears. Did you know that? Psalm 56, 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings, my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What does that mean? It means God keeps track of all your tears because as a Christian, you're his child and he keeps track of them because he's going to make all things new for you in the, in the age to come and he's going to make up for all of them. Do you realize that? Every single tear that has dropped out of your eye because of tragedy, God remembers it. He keeps it, as it were, in a bottle. And the church bridges that gap for the vulnerable until that glorious day we read of in Revelation 21.4 when He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now my first statement to you today was how you respond in your heart to this message today will show the true state of your soul, the true state of your heart before the Lord, whether you're truly regenerate, truly in Christ, truly a member of the kingdom of God. I'd like to close this morning by proving this to you. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I just want to show you proof of what I just said. I want this point driven home as deeply as possible and let's have the... Beloved disciple whom Jesus loved, have the last words today. 1 John chapter 2. My statement was how you respond in your heart to this message will show the true state of your soul. 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Verse 23, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. If you don't want to care for each other, you don't know Christ. That's not coming from me. That's about 17 or 18 times from the Apostle John. On the flip side, if you have a yearning in your heart right now to make sure you're first to help the vulnerable, that's a sign of your salvation. And you praise the Lord for that. So let us be a church that loves one another. Let us be a church that demonstrates the reality of salvation. Amen? Let's do that together. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for the absolute clarity. There is no, no doubt. There's no gray area here. We long as a local church body. We, we happen to meet right now on Young Street and shortly, by your kindness, we'll be meeting on White Lane. But as a, as a local church body, we long to have the reputation of a church that never loses its first love. That our love for Christ translates into love for one another. Forgiveness and tenderness and kindness to one another. Lord, may it never be said of Grace Bible Church that we let a vulnerable person slip through the cracks. And we're only human and we'll do our best, but we ask for your help and we ask for all of us to be the eyes and ears of the church, to see and to listen for needs. And to have that sanctifying joy of meeting needs. We, we pray for the men of our church, Lord, to be manly and to be godly in providing not only for their wives and children, but for their parents, for their wives' parents, for even those around them that have need. We pray for the women of our church who have means to be responsible as well. We pray to be a good and godly witness to the church, to the world rather, that the church of Jesus Christ is known as disciples of Christ because we love one another. Let that be our legacy, Lord, and what a great day it would be to stand before the throne and perhaps a a, a trumpet sounds and that's the gathering signal for those who were involved at Grace Bible Church at one time and to receive a commendation. Well done. Well done, good and faithful church. May we love one another with tenderness, generosity, and sacrificial love. 
all to the honor of our Savior and our King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.